Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guest this episode is drummer and percussion artist and teacher, Ralph Humphreys. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Sometimes a protester. I went to the University of California from the fall of 1970 until I graduated in the spring of 1975. From the spring of 1971, I was at UC Berkeley, where I not only studied but participated in a variety of protests and marches. Granted, I was never a student radical, more like a middle-class occasional version, but I was exposed to all sorts of political movements, and it did have an outsized influence on me. Of course, Berkeley was the home of the free speech movement, which began in the fall of 1964, when students started demanding an end to archaic free speech prohibitions that limited their free expression. Both on campus and off campus, students, led by grad student Mario Savio, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all, demanded a lifting of these bans and full free speech rights. Berkeley has been acknowledged as one of the main centers for free speech and protest ever since. I was a 12-year-old at the time, more concerned with my baseball card collection than national issues. This collection grew. So much so, he built an upstairs and downstairs room to hold all three million. Yet my family was interested in politics, most especially my heavily accented German-American grandpa, George Hebe, who saw a communist under almost every bed. The communist fifth columnist among us are working for a world dictatorship. Still, Pappy Hebe was interested in life and in civic participation. He took me to my first civil rights march in Vallejo, California in 1964, and I will never forget the singing of freedom, freedom, freedom as the march wended its way up Georgia Street. I went to high school in the East Bay from 1966 to 1970, and while there, read about and watched various protest movements in newspapers and television. I watched from a safe distance as People's Park unfolded in Berkeley in 1969, and I was fascinated by my radical German teacher, Frank Steinkelner, who raged against the police while teaching us German in suburban high school. I remember one time, Steiny, as we called him, slammed his textbook down to the floor as he screamed, How can I be teaching this crap when the pigs are cracking heads over the hills in Berkeley? I was definitely against the war, and I didn't want to be drafted. I was also into environmental causes in an early age, joining in the first Earth Day in April 1970, and determinedly walking three miles to school to join the protests. 
By the time I made it to Berkeley, I was primed to participate in campus strikes and teach-ins against Nixon's various Vietnam escalations. And I marched against the bombing of Hanoi and the mining of Haiphong Harbor around Christmas 1972. I worked for the university, and I remember setting up a chair for Joan Baez herself as she spoke to a crowd around the time of Nixon Kissinger's fake peace of January 1973. I recall thinking how small Baez seemed as the rain pelted down that January day in front of Sproul Hall. As I said, I was never a real rabble-rousing protester, but I did draw inspiration from the great dissidents of history. As a student, I read about Gandhi and marveled at how he stood up to the British Empire with his philosophy of non-violent resistance, or Satyagraha. A recent New Yorker article reminds us that the aim of Satyagraha was to arouse the conscience of oppressors and invigorate their victims with a sense of moral agency. Gandhi's unique mode of defiance, Reinhold Niebuhr observed as early as 1932, not only works to rob the opponent of the moral conceit by which he identifies his interests with the peace and order of society. Satyagraha, literally translated as holding fast to truth, obliged protesters to always keep an open mind and be ever ready to find that what we believed to be truth was, after all, untruth. Armed with this philosophy, Gandhi used Satyagraha as spiritual warfare and saw his fellow protesters as spiritual warriors, fearless enough to never resort to arms, as opposed to the cowards driven by fear to violence. With Satyagraha as his weapon, Gandhi achieved international fame with the Salt March, the protest against the British-imposed tax on salt. Mr. Gandhi will find it takes a great deal more than a pinch of salt to bring down the British Empire. Which inspired further civil disobedience campaigns across the nation and eventually led to the British leaving India and granting independence in 1947. Gandhi was a truly brave man and reflected that Politics encircle us today like the coil of a snake from which one cannot get out, no matter how much one tries. I wish, therefore, to wrestle with the snake. In this country, Gandhi inspired Martin Luther King. I would agree with Gandhi. A man who had already been named after a protester, Martin Luther, who took on the Catholic Church in 1519 by nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. King's tapping into Gandhi's philosophy helped make what might have stayed a regional protest with the Montgomery bus boycott into a national movement. Suddenly, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, was training students in nonviolent resistance and boycotting lunch counters and bus rides from the Carolinas to Mississippi. King came to believe that organized nonviolent protest against the system of segregation known as Jim Crow would lead to extensive media coverage of the struggle for black equality and voting rights. MLK's intention was to provoke mass arrests and open the door to negotiation. In his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, King wrote, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Citizens have not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws and at the same time to disobey unjust laws. And he further states, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. And in one lovely little metaphor, Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and you shall reap what you sow. These are powerful words indeed, and ones that motivate. 
King has energized people like our contemporary, the Reverend William Barber. There comes a time when the people of faith, particularly clergy and other religious people, can no longer sit on the sidelines. Pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Like MLK, Barber has continued to be involved in various poor people's campaigns, as well as the Moral Monday movement, enlisting a broad-based alliance of Christians, Muslims, Jews, non-believers, blacks, Latinos, poor whites, feminists, environmentalists, and others to protest the conservative agenda of the North Carolina legislature. Like King, Barber works to use his religion to practice a way of faith that is rooted in the struggles of common people and seeks justice and mercy against unfavorable odds. Barber's view of Christian faith puts him at odds with the evangelical right who say so much about areas where the Bible says very little, abortion and homosexuality, and speaks so little about the issues where the Bible says so much, like poverty, empathy, and justice. Though often ill of health, Barber consistently pushes confrontation with the Trump administration. I can say we intend to nonviolently confront our government and its policies, and we will refuse to give up our constitutional right to protest. Many activists have made an art of protesting through community organizing. Barack Obama began as a community organizer, and he followed in the footsteps of Saul Alinsky. And once I got in a hell, uh, well, I'd start organizing just like I do down here. Who wrote a classic tome on protest and political organizing, Rules for Radicals, back in 1971. Alinsky was focused on union rights, as well as improving living conditions in poor communities across the United States. In Rules for Radicals, Saul Alinsky tells us, The job of the organizer is to maneuver and bait the establishment so that it will publicly attack him as a dangerous enemy. The hysterical instant reaction of the establishment will not only validate the organizer's credentials of competency, but also ensure automatic popular invitation. Perhaps Alinsky was a little less lofty than Gandhi or MLK. If you ask me one thing which Los Angeles really needed above anything else, I would say what it needs is a massive enema, you know? Yet they would understand that getting a reaction was key. Alinsky was especially good at being unorthodox, yet effective. Listen to this example, related by journalist Nicholas von Hoffman. As an example, after organizing FIGHT, an acronym for Freedom, Independence, God, Honor, Today, in Rochester, New York, Alinsky once threatened to stage a fart-in to disrupt the sensibilities of the city's establishment at a Rochester Philharmonic concert. Fight members were to consume large quantities of baked beans, after which Fight's increasingly gaseous, music-loving members would tie themselves to the concert hall where they would sit expelling gaseous vapors with such noisy velocity as to compete with the woodwinds. Alinsky followed the fart-in with a piss-in at O'Hare Airport in Chicago where he arranged for large numbers of African Americans to occupy urinals and toilets at the airport for as long as it took to bring the city to the bargaining table. With Alinsky, it was key to note that the threat alone was often sufficient to produce results. In Rules for Radicals, he notes that this tactic fell under two of his rules. Rule number three, wherever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy. And rule number four, Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. 
With this Saul Alinsky rule in mind, or at least having intuited it, I came to my biggest contributions to political activism, skit writing for a comedy group. When I first started doing independent theater in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I began working with Hit and Run Theater of Mendocino, California. We wrote all our own material, and I was allowed to write whatever I wanted. Granted, not all of it was good enough to make the cut, but being politically provocative was definitely encouraged. Over the next 10 years, I wrote skits, songs, and short plays critical of the Reagan and Bush administrations, their campaigns to drill for offshore oil here in Northern California, their obsessions with new nuclear weapons like neutron bombs and cruise missiles, their pushing of one-sided policies in the Middle East and on the environment. Suddenly, Alinsky's notion that ridicule is man's most potent weapon could be joined to playwright Bertolt Brecht's idea that theater should be a political weapon for the underdog. This was a way for sardonic leftists to criticize the powers that be. Protest for silly people. Thank you, Saul Alinsky. We are fortunate to have the right to protest here in the U.S., and sadly, we continue to have much to protest. We have had inspirational examples of protesters going back to colonial times and the early days of the Republic, throughout the abolition and suffragette movements, and through the anti-war and civil rights movements. Today, the biggest new protest movements are for action on climate change. Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl, has become world famous by striking for climate action on Fridays and refusing to go to school. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? She has ignited a worldwide student movement to get political fossils to act on the matter, has been invited to speak to the European Parliament, and is swaying minds across the planet. Concurrently, a group of young UK students has started the Extinction Rebellion, a movement demanding action on climate change in its own and other governments. And in this country, the Sunrise Movement has waged sit-ins in the offices of Dianne Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, and the biggest fossil of all, Mitch McConnell's office. The Sunrise Movement promises an explosion of 100 town halls across this country to get people actively moving on the Green New Deal. This is a movement I have happily joined. In addition to marching against various stupid wars, Iraq, and non-existent WMDs come to mind in 2003. I have stayed involved with environmental movements over the last years. When I retired as a teacher two years ago, I went to see Al Gore's Inconvenient Sequel and noticed they were promoting their Climate Reality Project, where activists could sign up to become climate change reality presenters. I wrote them and was invited to their August 2018 training in Los Angeles. I went and have done 30 presentations since October 2018. I have found a way to join protests with citizen education, to help the arc of justice move in a better direction, and to wrestle with that snake. It's protest with a purpose, and it follows in the long line of activists I admire. So thanks to Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Henry David Thoreau, Susan B. Anthony, Saul Alinsky, and Greta Thunberg. Let me know where I can fart loudly with intent and make those powers that be that much less comfortable. We shall overcome. We 
Tom Lehrer, musical satirist extraordinaire. Live from New York. That was the week that was. Supreme Court rocks the states. Where the old guard dominates. Now with allocation by population, every voter rates. That was the week that was. Civil rights bill passed. The Senate comes through at last. Once more we're aware of good fresh air when for months we've been being gassed. In 1964, as we witness in this intro and this song, politics was quite different. President Kennedy had been shot in November 1963, Lyndon Johnson was suddenly running against Barry Goldwater, and a new British comedy import, That Was the Week That Was, was all the rage on American television. It regularly opened with a song relating the events of the past week, sung by Nancy Ames and featured some wicked satirical songs penned by a brilliant man named Tom Lehrer. Thomas Andrew Lehrer was born April 9, 1928, and wrote a series of terrific songs that were popular in the 1950s through the 1960s. His songs often parodied popular musical forms, though he mostly created original melodies when doing so. A notable exception is The Elements, where he set the names of the chemical elements to the tune of the Major General song from Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Lehrer's early work was noted for its sardonic and black humor in songs such as Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. In the 1960s, he produced a number of tunes that dealt with social and political issues of the day, especially when he wrote for the U.S. version of the television show That Was the Week That Was. The popularity of these songs has endured beyond their topical subjects and references. Lehrer quoted a friend's explanation, Always predict the worst, and you will be hailed as a prophet. Examples flourish, like pollution, sadly as relevant today as it was when it premiered in 1964. If you visit American City, you will find it very pretty. Just two things of which you must beware. Don't drink the water and don't breathe the air. Pollution, pollution, they got smog and sewage and mud. Turn on your tap and get hot and cold running crud. Tom Lehrer was born to a secular Jewish family and grew up in New York City. From early in his childhood, he showed great aptitude at the piano and as a young scholar. He was an adept classical musician, but was even more interested in popular music. He started writing songs while very young and was considered a child prodigy. The brilliant young Lehrer entered Harvard at age 15, where as an undergrad he wrote comic songs to entertain his friends. He was also a gifted young mathematician, getting a bachelor's degree, magna cum laude, at 18, and followed with a master's degree the very next year. 
He taught mathematics at MIT, Harvard, Wellesley, and eventually at UC Santa Cruz, where he was a professor for many years, until he retired in 2002. Lehrer even spent 1955-57 to in the U.S. Army, working for the National Security Agency. In addition to writing songs on the side, Lehrer also claims to have invented the Jell-O shot as a means of circumventing the Army's ban on alcoholic beverages. Of this, he was inordinately proud. So, let's put all this together. A brilliant mathematician who writes pithy and satirical song lyrics and works behind the scenes for the NSA. Eventually, he lobbied to teach classes in musical theater and political science, which he did for many more years. For the rest of his career, he occasionally performed songs in his lectures, especially those relating to the topic. Yet, while he was building an academic career and pushing the limits of mathematical theory, he was also writing songs. Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov recounted seeing Lehrer perform in a Boston nightclub on October 9, 1954. Quote, Lehrer sang cleverly about Jim getting it from Louise and Sally from Jim, and after a while, you gathered the it was venereal disease. As the combinations grew more grotesque, you realized he was satirizing every known perversion without using a single naughty phrase. It was clearly unsingable outside a nightclub. I love my friends, and they love me. We're just as close as we can be. And just because we really care, whatever we get, we share. I got it from Agnes, she got it from Jim We all agree it must have been Louise who gave it to him Now she got it from Harry, who got it from Marie And everybody knows that Marie got it from me Giles got it from Daphne, she got it from Joan Who picked it up in County Cork, a kiss in the Blarney Stone Lehrer recalled, lacking exposure in the media, my song spread slowly, like herpes, rather than Ebola. But Lehrer must have known he had something to offer and was encouraged by the success of his performances, so he paid $15 for some studio time in 1953 to record Songs by Tom Lehrer. According to Wikipedia and other sources, The initial pressing was 400 copies. Radio stations would not air his songs because of his controversial subjects. So he sold the album on campus at Harvard for $3, equivalent to $28 today, while several stores near the Harvard campus sold it for $3.50, taking only a minimal markup as a kind of community service. Newsstands on campus sold it for the same price. After one summer, he started to receive mail orders from all parts of the country, as far away as San Francisco, after the San Francisco Chronicle wrote an article on the record. Interest in his recording spread by word of mouth. People played their records for friends who then also wanted a copy. First you get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Do whatever steps you want if you have cleared them with the pontiff. Everybody say his own, Kyrie eleison, doing the Vatican right. Lehrer had a breakthrough in the UK in December 1957 when the University of London awarded a Doctor of Music degree to Princess Margaret, 
where she acknowledged one of her favorite contemporary musicians was a certain Tom Lehrer. This prompted interest in Lehrer's works and helped to secure distributors for his material in Britain. As a result of the proliferation of fans at university newspapers and the willingness of the BBC to play his songs on the radio, something that was a rarity in the United States, by the end of the 1950s, Lehrer had sold 370,000 records. And then came That Was the Week That Was, perfect for a song craftsman like Tom Lehrer. We got the bomb and that was good Cause we love peace and motherhood Then Russia got the bomb but that's okay Cause the balance of powers maintained that way Who's next? France got the bomb but don't you grieve Cause they're on our side, I believe China got the bomb but have no fears They can't wipe us out for at least five years Who's next? Uh, then Indonesia claimed that they were gonna get one any day. South Africa wants two, that's right. One for the black and one for the white. Who's next? Lehrer was very popular in American colleges and in Europe. He toured regularly, including in Europe, famously in Norway and Denmark in 1967, where the performance in Oslo on September 10th was recorded on videotape and aired locally that autumn. The Copenhagen performance was televised, and Lehrer commented on stage that he might be America's revenge for Victor Borga. In the early 1970s, Lehrer backed away from public performances to devote his time to teaching mathematics and music theater at UC Santa Cruz. When asked about his retreat, Lehrer said he just didn't like touring and had bored of performing the same songs over and over again. Even though Lehrer was a hero of the anti-war and civil rights movements and covered his political issues in many of his tunes, he did not feel at home in the movement. He was always simply his own man. And it was said of him, he could not continue performing more of the same and more of the same could not bring him back. And Lehrer famously said, political satire became obsolete when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Lehrer impressed many contemporary satirical composers. Randy Newman said, He's one of the great American songwriters without a doubt, right up there with everybody, the top guys. As a lyricist, as good as there's been in the last half of the 20th century. Ever the brilliant Doubting Thomas, Lehrer has said that he doubted his songs had any effect on those not already critical of the establishment. I don't think this kind of thing has an impact on the unconverted, frankly. It's not even preaching to the converted. It's titillating the converted. I'm not tempted to write a song about George W. Bush. I couldn't figure out what sort of song I would write. That's the problem. I don't want to satirize George Bush and his puppeteers. I want to vaporize them. I'm fond of quoting Peter Cook, who talked about the satirical Berlin cabarets of the 1930s, which did so much to stop the rise of Hitler and prevent the Second World War. In summation, Lehrer said, If, after hearing my songs, just one human being is inspired to say something nasty to a friend, it will all have been worth the while. In 2001, Lehrer taught his last mathematics class on the topic of infinity and retired from academia. He has remained in the area and in 2003 said he still hangs out around the University of California, Santa Cruz. The white folks hate the black folks and the black folks hate the white folks. To hate all but the right folks is an old established rule, but during National Brotherhood Week, National Brotherhood Week, 
See Cassius Clay and Mrs. Wallace dancing cheek to cheek. It's fun to eulogize the people you despise as long as you don't let them in your school. Oh, the poor folks hate the rich folks, and the rich folks hate the poor folks. All of my folks hate all of your folks. It's American as apple pie. But during National Brotherhood Week, National Brotherhood Week, New Yorkers love the Puerto Ricans cause it's very chic. Step up and shake the hand of someone you can't stand. You can tolerate him if you try. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. And now our interview with drummer and percussion artist and teacher, Ralph Humphreys. Well, we're here with Ralph Humphrey. When did you start drumming and what got you interested in drumming? Did you play other instruments? I was a clarinet player. From age nine, the school offers... The school people, uh, the, ch- the children, instruments. Yeah, yeah. And my parents thought, well, you should pick up an instrument. And I said, okay, I want the trumpet. I don't know what made them say it. It could have been the truth or not. But they said, well, I think the dentist told us that your teeth aren't formed right for a trumpet. <laughs> How about a clarinet? Uh, you think <laughs> they didn't? Yeah. yeah, they didn't want it so loud, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> so I played the clarinet for 12 years mm-hmm. uh, through junior high, high school, and uh, two years of college. I knew that that wasn't my instrument, so uh, in high school, I guess I began getting interested in drums. And uh, at 15, I started playing drums, and it was on it, this. I was in the Dixieland band playing clarinet, hmm. and uh, we were doing this little mall gig. And the drummer was late, and so they needed somebody to play the drums while he before he got there. I, I just went and sat down and played, and it was like this feels like at home, hmm. you know. So that's kind of where it started. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, there was a little bit of interest before then. I was, I had some sticks. I was playing along to records on my mother's ironing board because I didn't have any drums or anything, and I <laughs> and I, I was really having a great time. So I had some little bit of ability. I didn't take any lessons, uh, and then just sat down and played the drums, and uh, off I went. Did, was the ironing board <laughs> sound? Did you were you able to replicate the ironing board sound? <laughs> it had a nice bounce. <laughs> I bet it, it did. It just had great rebounds. So. That's it was great. good. Yeah. Oh, good, yeah. So uh, the the Dixieland band, would you say then that particular drumming, what was the name of the band? Just curious. The Derbies. The Derbies. Of course, we were Derbies and, uh-huh. and LeMay vests and the whole thing, bow ties. You know, it was it was a high school gig band. Was this, you grew up, you said before, in Castro Valley, Castro Valley. East Bay. And so was this in a Castro Valley gig? It was. It was all the players were Castro Valley high school students. A couple of them were my best buds, and uh, and yeah, we, we we had a great time playing pizza joints and little, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. mall gigs and whatever. And I, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. We weren't that active, but we we, we it gave us a chance to play some. Was Dixieland like a, a love, a musical love of yours in those days? Were you kind of all over the map? Or I, I would say my mother played piano. Okay, not professionally, but she loved to play the piano, and uh, she also liked ragtime. So she would play a lot of ragtime in the house, along with, you know, classics and things like that. So there was always music going on, and then she'd play, and, and I would enjoy what she was doing. Yeah, the records that, that she had, and, and mostly her, because my dad 
You know, he said, I, I listen to the radio, but that's about it as far as I go for music. <laughs> Dixieland Ragtime, and then I, I fell in love with Pete Fountain. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'd started trying to, trying to figure out some of the things he was doing, you know, I'd play along. But at the same time, I was also listening to his drummer, Jack Sperling. Mm-hmm. Loved his playing. So it was like a dual kind of a thing I was interested in there. So maybe it was Jack that maybe started inspiring me to think about you know, the drumming part of what was going on. I was immediately attracted to what he was doing. But of course, I was trying to figure out what Pete was doing too. And, and so that was sort of part of my early development. Right, yeah. <clears throat> now, if, yeah, I know you, we'll talk about the other bands you played with. And, and, you know, just to look at you've had a hell of a resume, Ralph. i got to tell you. Know, <laughs> well, it's because you know. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if, you know, if you had a back of a baseball card and it was your music card, you, you would have played for all these great teams. You need two cards. Yeah, you would. <laughs> so what brought you into that transition to become a percussionist? I mean, what was the big thing? Well, you know, junior high school, I was playing clarinet. In high school, I started playing the drums. I had a great music teacher. His name was Eugene Graves. Just very inspiring. He was a drummer, but had just a great symphonic band. And so I played clarinet in the symphonic band, but then also had a chance to go back into the percussion section and play some of that stuff, too, because he knew that I wanted to play some drums, too. So I started doing that, and then there was a stage band at the high school that got started. And so I, I got into that and started playing some, you know, big band jazz and and things that he would bring in. And then we would go to these festivals and play these festivals. So I was having a lot of fun doing that. And then uh, I guess it was at that time that I thought, you know what, I, I really like what, what this is all about. I think I'm going to go to college and continue studying music. So I went to the College of San Mateo. Oh, yeah. And again, wonderful teachers over there. Bud Young, the harmony and theory guy, I loved him, and I learned a lot about harmony and theory. And then Dick Crest, the big band director, who I ended up doing gigs with outside of the, uh, of the school. So that sort of st- st- set me on my professional career, along with playing some trio jazz gigs in San Francisco and mm-hmm. some strip joints in Oakland and in the, in the area. You know, just, I just, So I just, I, it was starting, and I was really loving everything I was doing, but I was particularly interested now in jazz. That's, that's where things were going. So that's the, the big start uh, zone is probably getting into jazz. Um, you know, is that when you started working with uh, Don Ellis? Well, the precursor to that would be like with Dick Crest. I had a uh, teacher. I had, yeah, in the uh, summer of 63, no, 63 and 64, we played the Russian River Resort oh, all yeah. summer. And uh, I got to play with some of the best musicians in the Bay Area. You know, Dick had a wonderful octet with the singer, had a great book. We played all the all the standards, you know. And so I learned all that music. Got to play with guys older than me, so it really made me like, you know, come up to their level. To me, that was that I I grew a lot during those couple of years. And then once I left college in San Mateo, I said, well, where am I going to go now? Because that was a junior college, and I I got a scholarship to San Jose State. Great. And yeah. went to San Jose State, and the director there, the jazz director there, his name is Dwight Cannon. Very eccentric guy. We would we would rehearse sometimes in the dark. You know, and say, okay, guys, play anything you want. He was very avant-garde. And he was the one that turned the band on to Don Ellis. Uh-huh. He brought his first record in live at Monterey and said, guys, wait till you hear this. I had no clue what, what this was going to be all about, and I immediately fell in love with uh, what I was hearing. Do you know anything about Don Ellis? No, I need some <clears throat> education. This okay. Trumpet player, uh, sort of uh, in the sort of third stream style of trumpet playing from New York. 
moved to Los Angeles, but in the meantime, started studying Indian music with a gentleman by the name of Harihar Rao, who was a sitarist and a tablist who lived in Pasadena, California. And I don't know what, what initially turned on to this kind of music, but Indian music is not like American, Western, European music. Totally different <clears throat> scales, right? So Don was learning that and deciding, well, I'm going to form a big band that combines Indian rhythms and music with American jazz. And so that's what started that band. And I guess that started in probably 65 or 66 in L.A. I'm still living in the Bay Area, going to school, trying to stay out of the Vietnam, you know, taking full time. The riot squads were marching down the middle of the campus. It was a weird, a weird time. So Dwight Cannon decides he's going to invite Don Ellis to come and play with our band. Great. Okay, bring it on. So Don comes up and rehearses. Uh, he's bringing his drummer, but his drummer missed the flight. Steve Bohannon, great, great drummer who died at age 21, tragically. So I got to play the rehearsal. And, you know, what little I knew about his music, I did a pretty good job because I, I was a good reader, mm-hmm. thanks, thanks to the clarinet. Mm-hmm. And then just listening to what I was hearing, which was not typical, rhythmically, you know, odd meters, odd rhythms, lots of energy, l- lots of fun. I mean, really, this is like being, you know, being a, having an e-ticket at Disneyland. It was just a lot of fun. So we played the rehearsal. The drummer showed up. We played the concert that night. Now, Don's band was, was sort of an expanded big band. He had up to four acoustic bass players. Wow. Minimum three drummers, including percussion, full saxophone section, three trombones, th- uh, three trumpets. And, and once in a while, he would augment with French horn and eventually strings. But the band that I played in, ended up playing with didn't have the strings yet. So we played the concert, and it was, I played second drums behind Steve Bohannon, and it was just a blast. Don goes home. I continued playing at San Jose State. Six months later, I get a phone call from Don Ellis. And he said, my drummer's leaving, Steve Bohannon. And I'm looking for a drummer. Would you like to come down and audition for the band? My immediate thought was, he's calling me from Los Angeles, which is full of great drummers. Why is he calling me? You know, so obviously something stuck in his mind about me having a potential for, for what he was doing. And I knew I had it, you know, it was, but I still felt hardly prepared. But of course I said, yes, I'll come down, you know. So January 1st, 1968, I fly down to L.A. I, I don't think I've ever been quite as nervous as I was in that flight. Well, the audition was in a packed club in Los Angeles. That's the audition. Wow. So he, halfway through the first session, first uh, uh, half of their session, he calls me up to the bandstand. Now, I don't know what he's going to call. Mm-hmm. I have had no preparation at all. But the drummer leaves, I sit down on the drums, and he calls up a tune. And I played, and I played two or three tunes to finish off the set. It was totally exhilarating, but nerve-wracking at the same time. I tell my students and other people, if I was to give myself a grade, it would be C plus, B minus, in that range. Uh The uh, percussionist, uh, conga player, Chino Valdez from Cuba, who also was a drummer player, said, Ralph, let's go to the bar. I want to tell you a few things. <laughs> yeah. So I got my first lesson in, in odd meters and odd rhythms from Chino. But after that night, Don said, well, come back to my office in my home and let's, let's talk. So I go back and he said, well, what did you think? And I said, well, it was thoroughly exhilarating and, and 
be beyond my ability, I think. But he said, well, no, I, I, think, you're, you're, I think you're the guy. Why don't you say yes and then come on down and join the band? Because we've got a tour coming up to Europe. We have a, an album to, to record. And uh, my drummer's leaving. He's got about three more months here. So, you know, why don't you come down and take the second drum chair and, and get yourself prepared? So you're like 24 at this point? I, exactly. Mm -hmm. and I, I said, okay. A month later, I was living in L.A. Oh, that's great. Just like that. Yeah. Coming to L.A. with a job, how many guys are able to do that? You know, and also, it's interesting, too, the role of serendipity. You mentioned the high school band, the one time the guy, the drummer wasn't there, you ended up yeah. moving from clarinet to drums. Exactly. And then you missed that, I guess it's Bohannon, missed the plane, yeah. or didn't didn't catch that and flight, and suddenly you're there. I'm there. And then you get a chance to show your stuff, and that clicks. But it's taking advantage of the opportunities. Well, exactly. Preparation meets opportunity. That's yeah. what it's all about. That's what I teach my students. Yeah. I said, you never know what is going to pass you away, but you want to be able to jump on it when it does. Yeah. Right? So luckily for me, the timing was really, really good. Did you keep with Ellis for like three, four, five years? Uh, almost five years. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the last year or so was more off and on. But yeah, I, I was pretty much the drummer in the band. Tell, to tell us the differences, the, some of the classic differences between being a jazz drummer and, say, being a straight-ahead rock and roll drummer. I mean, if you could, a short distillation. <laughs> pardon, pardon me, Ralph, please. Well, well first of all, the, my age, a lot of the drummers that actually ended up becoming good rock drummers were jazz drummers uh -huh. before. Mm. People like John Bonham. People like Charlie Watts. Yeah. So uh, Ringo, I, I, can't, I don't know about Ringo's background, but but yeah, I mean, some of those guys, you know, Mitch Mitchell with Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. definitely a jazz player. You can Ginger hear it Baker constantly. Too, I think, mm -hmm. right? Ginger Baker, yeah. that's right. So all those guys during that era had started out as jazz players and then morphed into into the new, the new style. And, you know, so be, be, being in Don's band, first of all, Don, his music was... It, it was jazz, but then it wasn't. It was hard to put a label on what his music was. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the lineage of big bands, you know, you've got obviously Count Basie and Duke Ellington and, right. and Maynard Ferguson. And, and then there's Stan Kenton, who was kind of like moving into a new, a new area. And I think Don was coming out of that sort of world in the big band world. So his big band was unlike any other big band ever and it had a reputation <laughs> sometimes a sordid one because most of the jazz players in LA look look they kind of frowned upon it because it wasn't traditional jazz it wasn't traditional big band you can't swing in 5-4 so there was a lot of that going on but I found it extremely exhilarating and very modern and very challenging so the new I would say that the newer rock drummers perhaps did not have any background in jazz. To them and to any student right now, it, it, jazz is history. You know, yeah. If you want to play it, you've got to actually know how to do it, you know, because it's not in our current milieu that, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, that you could just turn the radio on and hear jazz all day. You know? mm -hmm. So, you know, I got turned on to you know, all the great jazz artists at the time, and so I was, I was leaning in that direction, uh, but at the same time playing in Don's band. So it was, for me, the best of everything yeah did you um did you also like sub in in rock bands if somebody called you up for a gig or something like that i or? was not known 
at, in the rock world. Mm -hmm. I was more in, in the jazz big band world. Mm -hmm. uh, so no, I didn't do any rock gigs at all. I did later on, I did what I would call pop, you know, rock gigs, like playing with uh, Seals and Crofts, for example, oh, yeah, in sure. 1976. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment when I had an opportunity, if I had wanted, to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, join up with uh, Kenny Loggins. Mm -hmm. uh, this was after Frank. But I decided I wanted to stay in town and, and try to develop a, a session career. That, that's kind of like where my mind was starting to go. Yeah. Since you mentioned Frank, and you, you started to become involved with them in the early, early middle 70s. So, um, you know, the tenure with Don was ending around 72, 73. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I was going to, okay, I'm going to hunker down here, stay in town. George Duke calls me up. You know, he's currently in Frank's band, and I knew George from the Bay Area. And he says, Ralph, Frank's looking for a drummer. <laughs> Here it comes again. <laughs> How can this happen? He says, he's, he's listened to several drummers and he's not happy yet. So we're, we've been rehearsing. Why don't you come down and, and do a rehearsal and, and audition for the band? Well, I, 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 hadn't, I didn't know Frank's music at all. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, you know, I heard bits and pieces and I knew that a few of his records were, were semi-hits, like Hot Rats, for example. Mm -hmm. And I knew some of the drummers that were playing in, on, that, on that album. John Guerin, Jim Gordon, a couple of other guys. Ainsley Dunbar, oh, yeah. who actually replaced Ainsley. Uh, because Ainsley went on to play with uh, Journey. Journey. Uh, so, so I go down. I, he runs me through the ringer. I, I, I know I had to read... Something pretty complicated, you know, to see. He had to check me out there. Mm -hmm. we, we jammed in some odd meters. You know, we, we, he, he got a chance to hear what I did. And he hired me on the spot. That's like great. That. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I said, okay, you know, well, let's go, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, he had recordings that were coming up. He had tours that were coming up. And, and what a band. Yeah. George Duke, Jean-Luc Ponty, Ian and Ruth Underwood, Tom Fowler, Bruce Fowler. I mean... Doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, and I think Don set me up for that. Playing with Don Ellis, I was fearless at that moment. Mm -hmm. I really was. Uh, I, I learned a lot about taking control at the drums because mm -hmm. you have to. You're mm -hmm. the driver. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you go down, everybody's going down. So yeah, I, I learned a lot about playing with Don, playing out in public, recording, all that sort of thing. So when I walked into Frank's rehearsal I was feeling pretty good yeah you know I, if I want this I can have this yeah you know so that's where you know having good experiences and and, and whatnot really pay off yeah. what were some of the like uh, the hit like the first things that uh, touring with Zappa you've got any big anecdotes because you know well you know during that era era you, you say 72 73 73 74 is the period that I was in I, I took the gig and and what I realized was that I, I admired Frank so much as as a musician as a composer as an intellectual as a leader and he was not the kind of guy that would you know you could go hang out at the bar and have a drink and you know mm -hmm. shoot the shit so, so I, I, my, my position was, I will do whatever he wants me to do, you know, and, and sometimes it meant doing things that, you know, you wouldn't normally do, but nothing, you know, lewd sort of, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how he took that gig on, and, and so I, I worked really, really hard to, to get the music down, and uh, 
what one thing that I remember doing because a lot a lot of times Frank would come in and he would spoon feed the, the information that he wanted everybody to play. So we didn't know ahead of time. And he, and we would develop in the rehearsal. And so the one way I thought, how do I remember all of this stuff? So I would I actually recorded on a cassette all the rehearsals and then we'd go home that night, listen to the rehearsal and really learn what I had just heard. Because I, I wasn't writing things down. The horn players, they were writing things down. Uh, Ruth was writing things down. Each of us had our own system for, for that. So I would listen to the rehearsal and then come back the next day and be ready for the next step. And sometimes Frank would say, Frank would forget what we had done the day before, so I would, I would be able to remind him, Frank, we did this next. If you, you know, and he said, oh yeah, that's right. And he would keep adding to it. So he would make these sequences of, of a story. You know, it all had a story. And eventually, you know, it'd be, he would complete it, and then we'd rehearse the heck out of it. Because rule number one was no music on stage. It all had to be here. Oh, really? Oh, no, no sheet music. No, nothing. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm thinking, Ruth, the stuff she had to learn. Oh, wow. I, I mean, but she was capable. She was, yeah. She's a child prodigy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just an amazing musician. So, that, that, you know, that basically... Uh, was the way we would rehearse. We would rehearse five days a week for a good two to three weeks before we'd go on the road. Yeah. So that we'd really have it together. Frank hated mistakes. He wanted the band to sound always as good as possible. What was in his head. Because he was so brilliant, because of what he wanted and what he was hearing in his head, I gave him 100%. One anecdote, I would say, is, is uh, when we were playing the Ten Concerts with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And this was like early on when I started playing with him. I realized I wasn't strong enough. I didn't, I didn't have the endurance factor that you need to play his music because he would do two and a half, three hour shows. And a lot of, a lot of times the sequences of songs would last 45, 50 minutes. Wow. So you're constantly playing and, and thinking for that length of time. And some of the music got fast and loud and intricate. So... I started practicing on a pillow in the, in the hotel rooms with no rebound because I, I felt I got to get stronger. And this was also after seeing Billy Cobham play mm-hmm. and realizing, well, Billy's, and I'm five foot six, 130 pounds. It was like, I, I got I to gotta come up to the game here, you know. So I started doing a little bit of work on my own mm-hmm. to get stronger, and I did. Did you actually, like, hit the gym kind of thing? No, mm-hmm. I never did mm-hmm. that. I was mm-hmm. never a gym guy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No. So you just work on the drums? Just, and just, just working, working on a pillow just with the hands. And, you know, of course, you got to pick the stick up because there's no rebound. And so that really, really did help in terms of uh, playing stronger, having more stamina. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, is there like a secret pamphlet somewhere, the Ralph Humphrey drummer workout book? Yeah, or well, like maybe that? I should create one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would You're be using good. the pillow. <laughs> Chapter two, use the pillow. Well, I know, other, I know other drummers were doing the same thing, so mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's probably a good thing yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, did you stick with Zappa for a couple of years? Or well, it was probably a little less than two years. So, you know, I was the only drummer in the beginning, and then Chester came on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's it's really interesting, you know, when you you come to a point where you get the feeling that something has to change. I got that feeling, and Frank got that feeling at the same time. So at the time that I wanted to leave, he was ready not to invite me back into the band. Oh, so it was just okay, we're done, sure. you know. And mm-hmm. and 
actually, in that year and a half, we had done a lot. I had recorded a lot. Uh, we had toured a lot. I had gotten my fill of doing that. And it wasn't like, you know, I was married to Frank or the band, you know, that this is my career. This is Frank's career, not mine. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I had other things I wanted to start doing. Yeah. So that's when I said, okay, I'm done now. Let's see if I can stay in town and, and get started on, on my career. Did you head off at that point in more of the session studio direction? That or? was kind mm -hmm. of what I wanted to start to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I had the, uh, the ability to, to do studio work. My time was good. My reading was good. I had the, good, the right mentality for, for following directions and, and, and doing any kind of music that anybody put in front of me mm -hmm. uh, because of Don's experience and, and Frank's experience. And at the time, the town was pretty busy. You yeah. gotta, I got to say, a lot of film, a lot of uh, jingles, a lot of uh, television, etc., uh, etc. Et so I was starting to sort of work my way in a little bit. You know, I, I was on the fringe. There, were, there was a, a core group of guys that were the A session players. And uh, sometimes they weren't able to you know, fulfill everything because they, they would double book themselves. So I started getting some inroads to some of those things. Yeah. Was so, it, was it sort ahead. of a, a L.A. version of the Wrecking Crew kind of thing? Well, yeah, I came after the Wrecking Crew, yeah, but, yeah. but I knew a lot of those guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tommy Tedesco, for example. Yeah, yeah. Good friend of mine. We taught together at, uh, at the Musicians Institute for, for many years. And uh, um, Joe Percaro, my partner in, in the school there and the current school. Because they were like it. They were like... The people behind the monkeys. Every, they every, were the, the Beach guys. Boys. Everything. They all were of them. The, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Sunny and Cher. Yeah. You know, all. So, yeah, I, I, I was sort of the next generation of musician after the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. But yeah, those were the people that I was uh, starting to do some of their sessions because they were so busy. I guess I guess the first drummer that totally impressed me when I moved to L.A. was John Guerin. He was he was. L.A. Express, mm -hmm. Tom Scott, Joni oh, yeah. Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he was doing all the big sessions. He was playing live in different big bands and small groups, and I, I just loved how he played. He eventually started doing some of the work he was doing. So, yeah, I was starting making those inroads. Yeah. Where you mentioned uh, television and films and stuff. <clears throat> Did the, a lot of those sessions head in that direct? Did you make those connections with some of the sort of film TV people? Well, you might, you, first of all, it's word of mouth. Yeah, you know, so the people you're playing with yeah. will pass your name on to somebody else. Eventually, it gets to a composer uh, who can request certain people. Well, if you can't get him, get him. All right. Yeah. So that's what was happening. Okay. Well, I hear Ralph Humphrey is can do the job. So yeah, call him. And then you arrive at the session, and so it's either the composer or the contractor that you get called by. So I was already starting to meet some of the contractors as well. An interesting job that is because a lot of them were not musicians but they had their list of people that they liked that they yeah. would call all the time yeah so it, it became a little factional you know mm -hmm. but uh yeah, yeah i started working for certain composers and started working for certain contractors one composer in particular his name is dennis mccarthy toured with glenn campbell for years was mm -hmm. his musical director piano player he started getting some really good work and so i i was his drummer for the length of time that he was busy and it was for many many years yeah so when once you get connected with somebody and they they know you you know them and they depend on you then you, you've got work 
You're the Steady Eddie guy then. Steady, oh, Steady Eddie. So that was that was a fantastic thing. And there were a couple of guys that I would I would work for all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, because they could depend on me, and that's really important for a composer. Oh yeah, or a contractor. Well, one of the things that I know you've worked on a lot of animation stuff. Um, yeah. I saw, in fact, I, I, I love all these shows. <laughs> I got to say, I saw you worked on The Simpsons, Pinky and the Brain, The Animaniacs, King of the Hill. I mean, typically, do you get called in to do all the percussive sound effects? or I mean, just describe the typical gigs in the animation world. Well, The Simpsons has been around for... 30 years now, yeah, I, I think. think so, 30 yeah. years. So, yeah. I was not the original drummer for The Simpsons, but I did a lot of the sessions. During the 90s, uh, Warner Brothers began to uh, resurrect the uh, the Carl Stalling style of music right. for cartoons. Yeah. And so, you know, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Tweety and Sylvester, you know, you, like you named a few of them. Great composer, and, and his team learned the Carl Stalling way of doing music. And so we would we would come to the session, and we'd have about a book of of music about that thick, which would represent one episode, uh, half an hour, because it's pretty much wall-to-wall music, right? And I was the drummer. Wow. Right? The percussionist, Mike Englander, I don't know how he did it, he would literally be surrounded by instruments. Mm -hmm. And he would have four music stands at each post, he had a headphone on, he would go from this to this to this to this in one cue. Wow. He was fabulous. Once in a while, I got to join him and play some, you know, whatever uh, but mostly my job was on the drums mm-hmm. and so your reading had to be top notch in fact every member of that orchestra and there was probably a 36 to 38 piece orchestra hot seat yeah or, you know the piccolo player the clarinet player the violin player i mean the trump i mean it, it was a it was such a great band yeah and you'd see the same people most of the time there yeah with some people that were able to come in and, and uh, sub out but uh, that was that was a good run. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> is it Carl Stallings? You Carl Stallings was yeah. the composer of the earlier nineteen forties and oh, yeah. stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Now this is a classic thing because <laughs> Warner Brothers had a great band. I think it was a, like an orchestra. Sure. And they they would do that, and we we associate all of that as beautiful music, cartoon music with that era, kind of disappeared in the early TV days. And then you're saying in the 90s, it got it, resurrected it got for these resurrected. shows. That's right. Yeah, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a major uh, improvement for, um, for uh, music soundtracks in that era because I think it raised the level of this new animation up and you oh, were part of that. Oh so. yeah, oh yeah, and it was, I was so happy to be part of it. That was also at a time when, uh, when electronics were coming on. So digital Drum machines, the digital technology, yeah. the revolution, uh, where you could make music digitally, yeah, and you didn't need the orchestra. But the good thing with with the cartoons was that uh, you know the demand was we we need the orchestra to make it sound like the music of Carl Stalin. Yeah, you know? it was a really excellent strap. I mean, if you wouldn't mind, could you describe? You'd mentioned the. Uh, the, the fellow you worked with who had the four stations with the percussive right, stuff right. and you were busy being a drummer. Right. I recently saw you do the uh, percussion for Buster Keaton's Cops right. at the Mendocino Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And um, that really blew me out in the sense that it seemed to me like you were doing all of it. Buster Keaton's film Cops was part of a silent film four or five um, films. There was four musician groups, yourself, Alex DeGrassi, 
uh, Carl Shane, and then also uh, a DJ who started the thing. <laughs> you ended up doing the final piece, which was Buster Keaton's Cops. All percussion. Yeah. And... Um, I was actually blown out by everything. Keaton's film is what, 15 minutes or so? Yeah, it was actually like ended up being 20, 21 minutes. 20, 21 yeah. minutes. Mm -hmm. And there's a variety of things. For one, there's a bunch of marching cops, and you play yeah. classic marching drums on right. that one. Right, right. There's a variety of other stuff going on, including mood, music, emotions type mm -hmm. stuff, and you're playing all kinds of things. What is, this drum, what is the area set up for that? <laughs> First of all, I've never done anything like this. Uh, so when George Russell contacted me and said, well, he, year, a year ago, he said, would you ever want to play drums on, on, on a film, on a silent film? I said, sure. So he finally he took me up on it, and, and I had to actually say, okay, you know, not knowing how I was going to do this because I had never done it before. So I guess my approach was not like the classical approach to scoring for film, which would be, you sit with the director, you spot the film, okay, we need music here, music here, music here. The composer goes away, writes the music, maps it out, clocks it out, and then comes in and records it. Well, I didn't have any sort of synchronization code that I could follow. Also, in the beginning, I was watching versions of the film, there are many versions of this on, on, online, that were faster than what we ended up doing. So he was able to send me finally the, the proper speed that they were going to show the film, which was a little slower than, than typical. So what I did was, I, I, first of all, I decided I wanted to be drum set and some auxiliary percussion, but not, nothing melodic. That was kind of what I wanted to do. Is, can I do this? Mm -hmm. uh, because most, most you know, film music to silent film is melodic. Yeah. You know, organ or mm -hmm. piano or even, even groups. And there have been dem several versions of, of Cops, by the way, that I, that I looked at. So I was, I was really studying and saying, okay. So I finally you know, went downstairs and got my drums and decided, okay, I need these other extra instruments along with the drum set. Let's get started. So I kind of saw the film in chunks. Okay, here's the first chunk. What am I going to do? Okay, next, next, next. And I just watched and tried to time according to the visual. Mm -hmm. There were lots of little things I wanted to make sure I caught, you know, little uh, gag things, you know, yeah. uh, just like a cartoon, Yeah. you know, except when I was doing the cartoons, it was written on my paper. Splash symbol right there, you know, so no problem. It's going to match up. Here I had to make sure that visually I was, I was matching up. So I had my own sort of mental way of timing things out and watching what was happening and maybe using something that I saw that, okay, when that, when that tire leaves the... When that tire moves away, okay, that's when I do it. You know, so I rehearsed quite a lot yeah. to get get all those timings correct, and you know, it it it, it came off okay. It came out better than I thought. It was great. <clears throat> You've also done a lot of these kind of um, contemporary, uh, not reality shows, but performance shows like Dancing with the Stars, mm -hmm. um, some of the <laughs> other stuff. What are those like? What are those experiences like? Well, again, I, I hooked up with certain composers through the years that would anything they did they I would get called so Harold Wheeler was the composer Harold's done a lot of uh, Broadway stuff uh, he just went, recently won an, uh, an Emmy or Tony one or the other brilliant man great guy great leader knows his stuff so well great writer 
So I started working uh, on his stuff. A lot of it is more R and B style, and, okay. and I and I learned R and B, you know, in the I would say in the in the seventies, playing with people like Seals and Crofts and uh, and others, and then eventually Al Jarreau, uh, Manhattan Transfer, yeah, which was a combination of everything, but a lot of fun. So I guess it was ABC uh, has it had this pilot they wanted to try, Dancing with the Stars, and so Harold was hired to. Uh, do the pilot, and so we went in, did the pilot, <laughs> and the attitude of the band was, "This is never gonna fly. This, this, is, not, <laughs> this is not gonna happen." Well, they picked the show up, mm-hmm. and so the next season we did, I think it was two days a week for ten weeks, and we did the show, and it became a hit, and that lasted for eight years. We did seventeen seasons because they did two seasons a year of of that, and it, that was the closest to sort of being on. Uh, hired by a studio as an orchestra uh, that it got. And, and again, another great band. Harold knew how to pick his people, and we had a ball playing that show. It was yeah. a lot of fun. A different kind of a thing, because now you're playing with, you're backing dancers. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So in the beginning, we figured out a way to feed a click to the musicians, a live click to the musicians, because the dancers are very, very particular about tempo. They're, they're working all week with a, with a minute and a half version of the song they're going to play. Not our arrangement, because that came afterwards. So the day of the rehearsal, they would hear our arrangement for the first time and dance oh, to it. Oh, I see. And then voice their concerns about, well, this doesn't sound right. Or that's... So it was always a trick to make sure the dancers were happy. So we, we decided, well, we better stay on a click then, because if we're slightly slow or slightly fast, the timing for the dancers is going to be off. So he would start the click manually. I would get it, and then we'd go. It, it, it was a ball because we played all styles of music. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. my, my parents you know, luck, love luck, that lucky, show. lucky for me mm-hmm. and for the rest of the guys in the band. That was that was that was a steady gig. Yeah, for, it's for eight years. Good. Well, that's kind of classic. Have you done any other of those kind of shows? Well, there was American Idol. American Idol. I did the first two that. seasons of American Idol. Mm-hmm. That was with a different composer. But yeah, you know, the first season, I think, was Kelly Clarkson. Oh, yeah. Won it that year. Yeah. So that, that was more of a pre-record situation where we would pre-record oh, all the music and then they'd just play it the night of the show. Dancing with the Stars was live. Oh, yeah. Live television. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's so unheard of nowadays. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. even then, it was like, wow, this, like is, this is a treat. Yeah. yeah. This is a real treat to be yeah. able to, on the stick, here we go, you know. And guess what? There was not one ever breakdown. Wow. From the band. Not Amazing. Once. Amazing. In eight yeah. years. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Now, you've also done all kinds <laughs> of teaching, and I know you're still involved with the uh, Los Angeles Music Academy. It's actually now called the Los Angeles College of Music ah. because we, uh, we thought that, that's, that's a better name because it gets more hits when you go online and you're looking for colleges. Right. Academy doesn't come up very quickly. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it sounds like a, a military school. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so we, so we changed the name a few years ago. Yeah. And yeah, I've been there for 21 years. 21 years, yeah. yeah. It says, uh, I read that you do uh, teaching playing techniques, rhythm studies, ensemble reading techniques. That's what I saw listed anyway. Right. Um, if I was, a, if Ken or I were uh, wannabe drummers and we came to the school, let's say we'd been in a couple of bands and maybe gigged a little bit. I mean, I came in and... What would, what would be the chorus? What would be the sort of the syllabus coming in? Well, back, I got, let me back up a little bit. 1980, okay. Okay. Joe Percaro 
my partner in, in the curriculum and development, part of the famous Percaro family, Jeff Percaro, Mike Percaro, Toto. And, and Joe was one of the first guys I met when I moved to L.A. Because he was he was second drums on Don Span at one time. So oh, really? I met Joe early, early on. He's, he's a beautiful human being. So Joe got called uh, by a gentleman by the name of Pat Hicks. This was now the Guitar Institute of Technology in Hollywood, California, which I, I think started in maybe 75, maybe around there. Tommy Tedesco, Joe DiOrio, Howard Roberts. They are the ones that started that school along with Pat Hicks. And it became quite popular quite fast. Uh, so in 1980, the, 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 the owner, Pat Hicks, thought, well, I, I have to now expand this and include drums. So he called Joe Picaro and said, I, I need a, a curriculum for one year of drums. Uh, can you do it? And by the way, this is April and we're starting in September. And Joe said, well, well uh, let me think about it. So originally it was going to be Joe and Emil Richards. You know who Emil Richards is? Famous percussionist in L.A., jazz vibist as well. Uh, Emil said no. Or he, may, he might have said yes in the beginning, but then later on he said no. So Joe called me and said, here's what's happening. Would, do you think you'd like to go in on this with me? Because I can't do it by myself. And I think you, you know some of the things that I don't know. I'm older and you know more about this than that and the other. So I said, okay, well, let's sit down and start thinking about, well, what is a drum school going to be? Yeah. You know, what, what do we need? And it would be more vocational than it would be academic, right? So we started getting together and started uh, deciding, okay, what are the subjects? Okay, and once we got those, and you named a few of them, then it was, okay, well, now we got to write a program, a week-by-week -week program. So when drummers come in, they stay one, here's what they're going to do, uh, and this is the class, and then here's your next class, and next class. So, in, in you know, we, we did it, and we opened uh, with 12 students. Well, it grew quite big yeah. <laughs> over the years. Those kinds of schools were becoming very, very popular. There were, there were a few of them around the country. They started growing some in Europe as well. And so we, 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 the timing was good for us. In 1996, 95, actually, the owner sold to a Japanese man, owner of a guitar company called ESP. He now has opened several schools in, in the Hollywood area. Uh, he's, he kind of owns half of Hollywood now. This guy's really, really successful. <laughs> well, so he took over in 95 and said, I'm not making any changes for a year. Well, a year goes by and he calls Joe and I in and says, Showed us the door, oh. you know. Uh, I can get anybody in here to do this. Okay, fine. And we just we said, well, we're taking our curriculum with us because we own the curriculum. At that very same time, another gentleman, a German, was opening up another school in Pasadena and needed curriculum, right? So, again, he calls Joe and said, well, I hear you guys are leaving. Why don't you come over here? So Joe and I went over there. And so in 1996, we, we joined that school, and it's still going. The so curriculum got revamped, re re uh -huh. okay. uh, expanded, because times are changing. Times do change, and so things have to be brought up to date and whatnot. But we felt that the core, the core areas were definitely learning how to play the instruments, so playing techniques. Mm -hmm. How do you learn to play the drum set? Because, yeah, there, there are countless books that I went through as a kid and all the other people go through with the kid as a kid and, and you study with a teacher and usually it's, it's hands, but not feet and hands on the drum set. So it's more, it's more for orchestral drumming or rudimental drumming. 
So we thought, well, drum set is a different instrument altogether. So we, we need a, a curriculum that addresses the drum set. So we have, a, we have a very, very strong playing techniques drum set course. Along with that, because of my experiences with Don Ellis and Frank Zappa, which heavily relies on knowing about rhythm yeah. and knowing how to exploit rhythm, use rhythm, I thought that class has to also happen. And then ensemble reading and techniques, that really has to do with looking at a chart, interpreting a chart for big band, for anything, but having to do with reading and interpretation. So that, to me, was also a very important class. And then all the auxiliary classes that go around with that, plus all the ensembles that would be included, plus private lessons and, and the like. So, so, you know, it's been very, very successful. Great. And you've also been writing for a Modern Drummer magazine, and you've written a book on percussion, Even in the Odds. You've got to tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on the road with Don Ellis, and I'm, I'm learning things about rhythm that I haven't seen in any books. And so I started writing. <clears throat> Long bus trips, right, between gigs. And I, I was writing and writing and writing and, and trying to come up with a system if there was a, such a thing, and I, and I didn't know what the system was going to be. I was just deciding to write. And, and I would say that book, it went, book it took about 10 years to finally get it to a point where, okay, I think I got it. And so it came out in 1980, and it's called Even in the Odds. It's actually been determined to be one of the best 25 method books out there. Great, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I started getting a lot of inquiries from other drummers when I was with Don to take lessons with me because I was doing things that they weren't doing and they wanted to know what am I doing yeah sure <laughs> what how are you doing what you're doing because you think about jazz or any popular music other than 4/4 four, four and 3/4 four and maybe 6/8 there are no other time signatures that are part of that kind of music so you know 5/4 and 7/4 and 13/8 and yeah. All these other unusual time signatures, drummers didn't know what they were all about. How do you understand what those rhythms are all about, what those meters are all about? So I, I, I started teaching privately and had quite a few fairly big-name drummers come my way and, mm-hmm. and say, okay, help me out here because I am interested in what's going on. So it was the beginning to me of sort of that whole kind of music that, that came out of jazz and rock. Yeah. Is even in the odds, just for people who are listening, can people get that? Like, oh, yes. order that book. It, they can. It's a it's a Barnhouse Publications. It's it's. I think they're in uh, they're mid Midwest someplace. Um, and uh, yes, you can get that book online. But I also wrote another book. Okay, you tell, don't us know about. tell us about this. All right, that came, <laughs> that came out two and a half years ago. It's called Rhythm by the Numbers, and it's published by Alfred. Alfred's a very big publishing company. And it, and it really, to me, it's, it's like a reduction of even in the odds and an expansion at the same time. It's a different approach mm-hmm. to my thinking about rhythm and, and how, to, how to learn how to do certain things. And it, stylistically, it covers every, all styles because it's really about rhythm and how to exploit rhythm. Taking an idea, taking a motif and putting it on the drum set, trying it this way, okay, try it that way, okay, put it in this style, put it in that style. Put it at this tempo, put it at that tempo. It's a smaller book. It, it looks like maybe something that is easier than even the odds. I would say, no, it, it would take you forever mm-hmm. to, to do all the ways I would like you to do this book. 
So that came out two and a half years ago, and I'm very proud of it. And, and I've got another book in the works that I'm working on. Well, what would this book be? Kind of an, an extension of Rhythm by the Numbers. So. It, it's, it's covering a lot, a lot more. It, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger, it'd be a bigger volume. But it's, it's continuing my, the way I think about rhythm. I definitely have a unique approach to how to convey information about rhythm and how to use exercises and whatnot, based on, again, Don Ellis and Frank Zappa. Yeah. I, I think I was really, really lucky to have those two experiences in my life. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things that's interesting, as, as somebody who was a teacher for years, too, and I still coach uh, improv theater, for example, is taking your practical experience as a player and then being able to transmit that in a teaching way right. and do it both intellectually, what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and also practically. That's right. Any thoughts on, on that? Like, how did, how did I, you know, when you were you were 18-year-old learning how to play drums, mm-hmm. and here you are, 70-year-old, mm-hmm. in passing it on. Just curious. Those. Well, you know, you make the point about how to, how to be intellectual about the subject matter, because it is, it's math. All right, drumming is, music is math. I, I love this whole thing, Ralph. Yeah, Please, right. yeah. Uh-huh. So that's what my thinking was because of my experiences. That's how I have to impart this information to someone else who didn't learn that way. So to me, there's two worlds of, of ways to think about music and rhythm. One is the Western European version. I would call that the metric system, okay? okay. Time signatures, the beat, subdivisions of the beat, bar lines, you know, that whole thing. Then there's the East Indian version of, of music, which is cyclic, meaning that you put one idea after another in a line. It has nothing to do with meter or bar lines. It's just, it's a cycle. So if you, if you take a, a rhythm, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to count four, and then I'm going to sing a rhythm. One, two, three, four. Ba, 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 ba. Okay, the metric system would be, if this is a quarter note, it'd be one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and subdivision of that beat. That's that's you've metered out the music, right? Cyclic version would be two three one two three one two three one two one two three one two three one two. There's the math. Okay, so in India that would be an eight beat cycle of 3-3-2. In the metric world, that would be just a bar of 4-4 using the eighth note, 1-N, 2-N, 3-N, 4-N. But the and of the beat is creating the so-called syncopation that we that is so important in our music. But in India, that would not be a syncopation. That would be the first note of the next group. Mm-hmm. So that that's a huge dichotomy of way of thinking. And, and my whole approach is bring those two worlds together so that you have at least, you have more than one way to hear what you're hearing and figuring out what you're figuring out, what you're hearing. That's my method. And that's what I'm trying to do with, with these books and what I do in my teaching. And that seems like it would have much more variety and much more uh, potential for improvisation. And... It, it does. And if you listen to what I would call some of the more modern groups that are out there, because let's, let's face it, We've, we've exploited melody and harmony totally, you know, for a long time. What hasn't been thoroughly exploited is rhythm. 
And that's what you're beginning to hear with a lot of the newer, really good, in, very intelligent bands that, that are out there. They're, who would you call, who would you say? Or well, okay, uh, I would say a band called Snarky Puppy. Yeah. I would yeah, say a band called Kneebody. Uh, a lot of what I would call new jazz groups that are kind of based on traditional jazz, but they're doing it in a modern way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is using rhythm yeah. to, to make it different than what it used to be. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's uh, and, then, and then some of the bands that I've played with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one currently, uh, which is coming up here on July 24th, called The Odd Docs. You will be uh, playing in the Mendocino Music Festival. This podcast will come out well after that, but you're coming up with the Odd Ducks, they're called? No, odd Dogs. Odd yeah. Dogs, okay, it could, good. It could good. be Ducks, or it could be Old Dogs, you know, it could be any of those. <laughs> yeah, so who, who, tell us about that band. Okay, well, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, some, of the, some of the players are teachers that I teach with at the school and play with a lot. Really great musicians. Two of them in particular, Jeff Miley, the guitar player, and Steve Billman, the bass player, are sort of the creators of the of the band, of the music. And so they spent a lot of time writing, and then they finally decided, well, okay, we've got enough here that we need to start trying some of this stuff, see what it sounds like. So so they got together with me and uh, Andy Suzuki, saxophone player, keyboard player, and a percussionist by the name of Billy Holting. And we, uh, we rehearsed a lot to learn the music, because the music is challenging, but... But when you listen to the music, it, it comes off not sounding challenging, but it's but it's definitely challenging to to, mm-hmm. to to play it the way we play it and not make it sound like complicated. So we we rehearsed a lot. We recorded. Recording came out very successfully, and uh, I talked Alan Pollock into bringing us up for the festival. If you were ask, asking me to describe the music, it's really hard to pigeonhole it. It, it has elements of jazz, it has elements of rock, it has elements of classical. Hmm. It, the moods vary from song to song, even within the same song. Uh, it's all instrumental. The music is fun to play. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's going to come out very, very well. And I, I like bands that challenge me. Yeah, I guess I've always liked that. It sounds like I would have to say that's one of the th- true themes yeah. of this yeah, interview. I, give me a challenge and I'll and I'll go for it. It's like the you know the film, yeah, uh, the bust uh, cops thing. Yeah. I mean, that was a challenge, and I said, okay, let yeah. me do it. Yeah. So the band before this that I was in that I again another kind of a challenging band was called Baba Ganoush, and we played <laughs> last year at the festival. Yeah, that's right. And that was that was uh, Jimmy McLeese on guitar and. Oud, because wow. Jimmy's a Greek guy. Yeah. So he would bring the Greek melodic and rhythmic elements to jazz. Mm-hmm. Bazooki <clears throat> jazz or something? This, uh, <laughs> pardon me? Bazooki jazz. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and mm-hmm. actually, he came up with a, uh, a Perla Battaglia, the, the, the woman that sings uh, uh, the Cohen songs. She came up last year. Jimmy was playing uh, a lot of the guitar and Oud with her. She just played the uh, Kate Wolf Festival, apparently. But anyhow, that that was a band that also recorded and uh, a lot of fun and very challenging, but not the same sounding music as the Odd Dogs, yeah. but the same kind of challenge for me. Yeah, I like the <laughs> the name of the group, the Baba Ganoush too. That's isn't that uh, eggplant kind it's of it a is thing from Saudi Arabia? Or yes, something? it is, and it's delicious. It's delicious. <laughs> I did good. I like your idea too that you're playing challenging music, but it's not. 
uncomfortable for the audience to listen to. I think if you can't communicate to the audience, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. That's got to be the most important thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and I I realize that more and more, even playing up here, playing rock and roll, mm -hmm. which, like I said, I wasn't playing any rock and roll in L.A., but I'm sure playing a lot of it up here. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah so yeah. I got a foot in both doors here, and it and it, I love it. But the challenge is, you know, making that transition. Mm -hmm. But I, but it's it's become a routine, and so I'm I'm able to do it for at least for now. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I mean, playing rock straight up rock and roll up here, you know, and it's. And that communicates to the audience as well, as you know, as simple as rock and roll music can be. Yeah. It, it's so so if you can make more complex music communicative, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Sometimes people seem to feel that their artists the word accessible is a bad word. Uh -huh. And uh, but I know like my wife who was a music major in school and did early music and a lot of that. Right. Uh, she has said to some of the stuff that I play, it, I feel like I have ants crawling on my skin. Uh -huh. You know, it, it's just I, I get it. But then again, our processional in our wedding was uh, uh, Peaches and Regalia. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So so Great. it's like you know I, we've been able to kind of come together and find a common ground within that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I just play my Aunt Crawley music when I'm alone. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I, I do the same thing with my wife. You know, there's some things that I really enjoy listening to that for her is just a little too heady. You know. I mean, and yeah, there there is music that to me, communicates less to a broader audience. Yes. And that's why it's got a limited audience, like, Which is like jazz, yeah. Yeah. you know? And there's more and more niche audience accessibility now because of the internet. That's right. So you can find people that like a small a audience kind of thing. That's right. And yeah. uh, and it's really, you know, I, I, but I like that, that you, you, you play a challenging music, but then you please the audience with it. Yeah. And that's that seems like the best of best worlds. I mean if it's all about if it's all about notes and, and volume and fast and all that, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's you ain't fine. You got a lot of chops and you can play the heck out of your instrument, but where what are you communicating? You know? Exactly. You Communication know? that's the ultimate <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is for us, this is a, a great interview for so many reasons, but one of the big reasons is is you're an educator. And I think I really enjoy the fact you've had this wonderful career, but you've also continued to educate people about percussion, about music, and about all these varieties of music. And who would have thought, you know, a 16-year-old clarinet player from Castro Valley would yeah. be doing this so many years later? Well, you know? you're exactly right. And, you know, that this things fell into place for me. The timing was good. And, you know, as a teacher, I think a teacher ought to give up everything they know to their student and hold nothing back because what's there's no there are no secrets you know and if you can if you have a way to impart information for a student to make them understand what what it's all about then then uh, you're you're giving you're giving off you know you're giving you know what you know yeah. and I and that that's why I still like to teach yeah you know it's 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 a very important part of my life yeah well you've educated us and uh for snap sessions i have to say thanks a ton for talking with us ralph humphrey thank you and it has been a blast i can hardly wait for this one to come out <laughs> thank you wonderful ralph. hey cheers thanks. man thank you Doug. thanks to our artist of the show ralph humphreys thanks to our tech meister marshall downtown brown and thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. 
Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.